Oh, hello, and welcome to the Community Experience Podcast. We are so glad you're here. If you're one of our regulars, you're probably wondering why we haven't published in a while. We actually chose to sunset the show in early 2023, but the feed will stay active because so many of the episodes are timeless. If you want to learn more and search our back catalog, you can visit smartpassiveincome.com slash podcast, all one word. It can feel like talking about grief is a totally different universe than talking about friendships or relationships. But it turns out that actually we're just all humans. And if we kind of greet those relationships and those moments with humanity and seeing each other and talking through them, we tend to end up on a good side. Tony Bacigalupo here. We got Joe Benvo. Hello. Hello. It's Community Experience Podcast. And today we are going to be talking with Mary Horn of The Dinner Party, which is such an innocuous sounding name for a community that is all about bringing people together to talk about grief over the loss of a loved one. The Dinner Party is so dear to my heart, as you'll hear, because I will fangirl all over this episode. But specifically, they're very focused on a certain person, and that's someone younger, someone in their 20s, 30s, early 40s that is dealing with grief And they bring people together around a literal dinner table. And the thing that really struck me is just the value of being okay with saying we are for a very specific person in a very specific part of their life. That is who we serve and that is who we're focused on. There's something about that. And I think in community building today, we err on the side of like, everybody's welcome. And not to say that's not a good thing too. There's something about holding a space for a specific group that then offers that group feeling comfortable and safe enough to really connect on a deeper level. You may find that even if you go niche down really specifically, you may find that you still have too large of an audience to ever be able to serve everybody. So all this is to say the folks at the dinner party are doing a great job of curating a community for a very specific niche of folks who need it the most people who are grieving loss. Here we go. Mary Horn, the dinner party. Really excited to share this with you on the community experience. Mary Horn, Dinner Party, so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. We are admittedly really excited about this episode. I've been looking forward to this for so long. Like no offense to the other guests. No offense to the other guests. No, no. <laughs> I mean, not to, not to discount excitement, but there's just this extra excitement around this because the Dinner Party as an organization does something that's very close to my heart, which is grief support. And Mary, you are the community manager for the dinner party. And I'd love for you to just tell our guests what it is if they haven't heard about it. Yeah, no problem. And thank you so much for loving our org. I really love it too. And it's a cause near and dear to my heart. The dinner party is 
a nonprofit based in the U.S. that serves grieving individuals who are in their 20s and 30s and early 40s. And the mission is really to bring people together around the isolation that comes from grief and not necessarily solve grief, but allow for people to build connection around something that ends up being really hard. And it turns out it's not as hard if you have other people to do it with you and alongside you. So, so wonderful. And the name has to do with how you gather. Yeah, it's a it's literally like a let's have a dinner party. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So in the early days of the dinner party, we were founded several years ago and pre-COVID. And in those days, what dinner partying looked like was actually gathering, getting linked up with people in your local area and going to a potluck dinner where you probably don't know anyone and are meeting people for the first time. But the common thread is that you've all come together because you've lost someone or several people who you care about. And you want to talk about it. You want to talk about what it is to live life after loss and to connect around that. And so before COVID, we were gathering in person and we were gathering in people's homes. And we were inviting everyone to bring a dish, maybe a dish that reminded you of the person that you lost, and to come together around an informal space. One of the things about the dinner party is that we're not setting out to do a five step program or in a kind of fluorescent lit church basement, but rather bring people together in an environment that's familiar and easy to talk in and something that feels comfortable for people when otherwise the topic is actually pretty hard to broach. And tell us a little bit, because I know a little bit about your story. So how did you get involved with this organization? Because I think this is an important story. So I lost my mom in 2015. And I think like a lot of other people in their early 20s, when they lose someone, I found myself isolated in that experience. None of my friends or none of my close friends had experienced loss of that type. And I didn't really know what exactly to do. And so I don't know exactly what I was looking for, but I definitely found myself in one of those like 1am, dear Google, what do you do when situations? And I stumbled upon the dinner party and I wasn't looking for something in particular or something specific, but what I found was a space and a community where I could show up as my full self. I could show up as the person who had lost their mom and hadn't really planned on life without them. And I could also show up as the person who was in her 20s dealing with grad school and relationships and career decisions and all of those things that complicate your younger years. And I could find peers who were also in those spots with me. I could find peers who kind of got it, you know, and they didn't necessarily share my exact experience, but there was a lot of resonance between what they were experiencing and what I was going through. And we were really just kind of doing it together. And so that's how I came to the community. And that was in 2015 and attending a dinner party, just like a potluck in another person's home. And then I got more involved and started hosting my own table when I moved to Brooklyn. And then in 2019, I joined the org as a staff member. So I did regional managing and I did some work actually connecting tables together in the Northeast. And then I started on staff helping with the virtual table program, which was kind of the big pivot we did when we got to COVID. Yeah, it's been a lot of years now, but over the course of them, it's kind of... I came from a place where I really needed the dinner party as a participant and then moved into a place in my own experience where I really wanted the org to exist for everyone. And so I think that's kind of what shifted for me in terms of being a participant and being a dinner partier and then moving to a space where I really just wanted to make it work. Uh, yes, I love it. I think too, and something I really wanted to, to touch on today is the power of having such a specific criteria for lack of a better term. So we all have experienced grief 
in some capacity, some in, in deeper levels than other. But there is this disconnect, I guess, like when you're younger and you lose someone very close to you, like a parent, a sibling, there's just there's this disconnect between people that understand it at that age versus, you know, when my grandma lost her spouse at 90. Right. It's like very different. And so to hold space for kind of that younger group going through grief and to your point, because we. I'm saying we, and I'm being very generous to myself because I'm on the way older end of, I think I still qualify, but like barely, but you know, the things we're going through, it's just very different than someone in a later stage in their life. So I'm curious your thoughts, just how the power of that, the power of it being, this is grief support for this age group. What does that look like at the org? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question and we kind of get it a lot, mostly because we get a lot of questions of like, oh, can I join if I'm 50? Or why are you only allowing people in who are in their 20s and 30s and early 40s? And the short answer is really that there's always been a gap in support for this particular age range. Oftentimes, you'll see grief support or like youth grief support, which kind of stops when people get to be 18. And then there's a lot of other grief support that shows up for people when they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s. You can imagine these as the kind of bereavement groups that especially cater to people who have lost spouses or people who have lost parents, and they're already in their maybe 40s, 50s, 60s. But there's a not a lot that's actually out there for people in their 20s and 30s. And so that's part of the reason that we started the dinner party for this particular group. And part of the reason that we limit it to that particular group, too, is because, one, we're a staff that's always tight on capacity and resources. And so we really need to stay focused in order to serve people well. So that's part of the practical reason. And the other reason is that we've actually found that there's a lot of resonance between people when they're at this stage in their life. And if they can come together and build bonds around the experience, particularly the experience of being the first or one of the first people in their group of peers to experience significant loss, that's really what keeps this group tight and like and something that really contributes to our want to keep the dinner party to a specific age range. That's poignant. And I think it must be hard because there are people that are maybe like just outside the criteria Frankly, there might still be like a gap, but it's your organization is okay with saying like, yeah, there might be. It's just we don't feel that. And kind of holding that boundary to protect what you've built, I think is really bold. It's courageous, but it's important. Yeah. It's one of those catch-22s of you could open it up to a wider audience, but then the people that you are there for who are looking for an environment for them start to maybe feel like it's no longer an environment for them. And then they stop showing up and then maybe the organization grows bigger, but the mission gets lost. That's what I think is helpful in a way, because, you know, we're so used to, especially in community, it's very tech based. Like a lot of tech startups kind of drove forward the digital community stuff. And with tech comes venture capital and rapid growth and, you know, that kind of things. But, and, and, you know, I I love nonprofits. I love bereavement nonprofits. So like to see a nonprofit do community from a nonprofit way is so refreshing because it isn't about, and we're going to scale so that we have a table in every city in the Northeast or whatever. And maybe that is a goal, but that like scaling isn't the priority. It's the work that's the priority. And that I wish more communities would consider. You know, what's interesting too, is you can still grow plenty. 
I mean, how has the dinner party trajectory been over these years? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think to your point, I do think that like we are, I guess I want to name a couple of things. I mean, one is like, right, the dinner party knows well that we even if we did grow and grow and grow, we couldn't serve all the needs out there. And so there's a little bit of like an honest truth to being able to say we do limit our community in some ways to maintain that specific focus. And even if we extended our reach as far as possible, like especially since COVID, I mean, the amount of need for grieving people is astronomical. We live in in an age where grief is everywhere. And so it's not even necessarily that we could if we wanted to in a really broad way, like we couldn't do it with the same skill and focus as we want to. And still, I think at the age range that we have, we have been able to scale a lot. And it's been exciting to see that. Because at the end of the day, again, there's such a need for this group of people. It sort of seems, or and this was my experience too, that when I lost my mom, it really felt like, wow, I'm the only person I know who has been through this. I don't have any friends or I don't have any acquaintances. All of my parents' friends are the ones who are kind of maybe my peers in this. And that also didn't sit quite right because it just felt like we were in different places at different times. It turns out, though, that actually a lot of people experience loss of some kind. And so to normalize that and to build spaces that are specifically for it, if anything, just kind of fills out the grief experience and grief services in some way. And over the years, we've been able to scale kind of as much as we can. Our model has always been one where we rely on volunteer hosts to build tables. And so a lot of our community, we've always had sort of more people looking to find a seat than the seats that we have. And that's really because we want this to be a peer-led collective care experience. So the hosts that we have are not trained professionals, but they are trained by our staff. And all of the tables are peer-led. And so that means that our community grows as the number of tables grows, as the number of hosts grows. And so over time, that's meant that we do have a sort of linear trajectory of just more tables over time. But we haven't necessarily scaled exponentially over the past several years, mostly because we're trying to go step by step and really do so with care. Yeah, much better to scale well than to scale fast. Yeah. And it matters a lot to us to do that when the people we're serving are grieving individuals. Like scaling is always tricky in any scenario. And I think we take a particular care in doing it for our community because when these relationships fail or when they don't work out, it kind of lands differently when what you're coming to our nonprofit for is grief support. Can you speak a little bit to the grief support side of things? So you mentioned that it's peer-led and I've dealt with this with some of the programs I've done where we know we're treading into difficult territory when it comes to deep, strong emotions. Different people are different level of emotional needs, and, and there might be other factors at play. How do you create an environment that feels safe for people to share and that consistently produces a healthy outcome? Yeah, that's such a good question. I guess there are a couple of things I can say about that. On the one hand, We always see the dinner party as a resource that's one of maybe many that people come to when they're grieving, right? We're not a one-size-fits-all, and people need multiple things when they need support and when they're looking for support systems. So I see the dinner party as really just one of many things that people might find. And what we do in particular is build spaces where people can gather with peers who sort of get it who have been there too, and who you can talk with on a human level about what you're experiencing. That's different, say, than going to a therapist and getting advice. We build these 
tables and these connections with hosts and with peers so that it's actually not an advice giving space, but really a here's what I'm sitting with. What are you sitting with too? And something that allows people to kind of meet meet everyone where they are and share freely. And so to build that, we've done a few things over the years. On the one hand, we train all of our volunteer hosts. So all of our hosts go through a two-part host training. And in those trainings, we kind of lay out the mission of the org, what hosting is and isn't, what peer-led care can look like and feel like, and the kind of mentality that we want everyone to go into these experiences with. So being a host isn't being a seminar leader. It's not being a therapist. It's this is my struggle and you have yours too kind of model, right? It's not it's not a fixer model or anything like that. And so that means that we try and have hosts be the ones to help set the tone for the experience. But hosts are also dinner partiers. So they're going to these gatherings, also looking to share their story and hear the story of others. And so that's one of the ways in which we try and really build these communities based on peers. And I think over time, what we've found is that you don't always need someone with letters behind their name to actually help you through what you're going through, right? A lot of the time, people just need someone who says, yeah, like that resonates. This reminds me of a time when I fill in the blank, you know, or like even just people to sit with them and something that's really hard, or more importantly, sometimes people to like laugh with them and to find joy in those unexpected moments. Because these groups are also not just about being sad together. They're about like living life after loss and about doing so alongside one another. And so I think that there's a huge swath of conversation and relationship building that can happen on a peer level. And that's what we're trying to cultivate. And it's not a replacement or a substitute for professional mental health services or anything like that. But it's really just relationships you can build and talk openly about what you're going through. I'm sure therapists in general too would agree. It's like, yeah, you come to me for a very, that's a very specific one-on-one, like you're really reflecting and going internal about you, but going and getting that peer support outside of a, a therapy model is hugely healing. And just that feeling of, oh, I'm not alone in this still sucks, <laughs> but other people have this experience. And just even though, again, doubly sucks that we both have this experience, the, just knowing someone else understands is so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. We often refer to the dinner party as like the club that no one wanted to join. But like once you're there, you're like happy to have the company at least, right? You know, it's like, oh, there's this mutual agreement that like, if we would have had our own way, we wouldn't have found ourselves here. And like, really grateful to have the accompaniment even still. I wish I never would have met you, but I'm glad I did. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it's like such a hard like line to toe, but it's really ours to hold. And yeah, I think we feel that way about the whole community that like, we're sorry you're here. And we're also so grateful for it. Do you find that there are people who come to the events who say that they thought that nobody could understand And then they feel like that shifts for them when they go to an event like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's maybe the most common experience, which is really exciting on a lot of levels. And I should also mention, so we have 
tables, which are small groups of individuals who get together with a host. And that's like the sort of group experience that you can have at the dinner party, all grieving peers. And then we also have something called the buddy system, which is a one-on-one connection where we match people one-on-one to talk about their grief as well. And I think in both of those situations, people can end up in a scenario where they're either talking to a grief peer in the buddy system, or they're going to a table and having the experience of hearing a lot of stories at once. And at the end of it, like the end of the day result that we really hope for is that they leave feeling less alone than when they came. And there's so many connections that people make in terms of arriving at a place thinking like, oh, there's no chance that anyone has lost the person that I will talk about or feels the same way that I do. And sometimes that's right, right? No one has the same experience. But the fact that there's a lot of resonance between what it's like to lose someone or what it's like to navigate a career after loss or navigate a relationship, like all of those resonances actually, I think, are what contribute to people feeling less alone. Yeah, I feel like it's just so hugely important. This reminds me a little bit of what I would hear about recovery groups, 12-step groups, things like that. Do you know if the dinner party has modeled its gathering formats off of other existing programs or or best practices? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, In some way, I think we've gone about building this community, sort of tipping those models on their heads a little bit. And what I mean is a lot of bereavement groups or recovery groups kind of start from a place of here's step one and we'll take you through it. And once you're done, you're done. And we'll kind of, you know, it's yours to carry from there. And instead of that, I mean, I think the dinner party readily admits that there's no like five-step program to getting over losing someone or anything like that. But beyond that, I think what the dinner party really builds for is community first. And so that means we're connecting people based on their stories and what they're looking for and the type of grief that they want to talk about. Then we're letting them form relationships and kind of see where it goes. I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things about the dinner party model is that we try and start with the relationship building. We set up tables and train hosts so that there's common community guidelines that people are following. There's a sort of similar shared goal of gathering and being witnesses to one another. And we start with that first. And then we don't make a plan because like I think most grievers would admit, there's really no roadmap, right? There's no roadmap to like, I'm going to feel this on this day and then I'm going to feel this on the next day. But rather, it's a constantly moving target. And what we really hope for is that when people join a table and gather with people regularly over time, that they build relationships that they can just be with and that they can have throughout their journey, wherever that ends up going. So in terms of what's the participant's journey through this, like they'll they'll come to a dinner party. Maybe they just they come to one and they get everything they need from it. They don't have to come back. But do people become regulars? Does it evolve into something else? Do you have this dynamic of kind of people who are coming all the time and then newbies who are coming in and there's kind of a like a mentor, you know, mentee kind of relationship? How does that play out over time? We don't have like mentor-mentee relationships because it's really everyone's a peer here and nobody is the necessary expert. But typically when people come finding the dinner party, they can have the option of choosing to sign up for a table or sign up for a buddy or both. They can choose their own adventure in terms of what they're looking for. Sometimes people are like, yeah, sign me up for a group experience because I would love to be in a group of people. And sometimes that's really intimidating for people. So people opt to go to the buddy system and just get matched with another peer so they have a one-on-one connection. 
either of those pathways, or if people do both of them, they always lead you to an ongoing set of relationships. So every table that we start actually meets regularly on an ongoing basis for however long that table wants to stick together. So we've had tables who have started and typically the group sizes are about 8 to 12 people. And so at the beginning, you know, 8 or 12 people show up for the first gathering, people make introductions, and then that table will meet maybe on a monthly basis ongoing for we've had tables meet for a year, we've had tables that are still meeting 5 years later. And those kind of formats change, but the group actually stays together. And that's part of the point so that you can actually get to know people over time. Same with the buddy system. If you get matched to a buddy, that's actually your relationship to go hold and have moving forward. And the great part about that is that you can have people along for the ride with you, as it were. This is incredible because, Jill, I'm wondering if you're thinking what I'm thinking about mastermind matchmaking and some of the things. This unrelated entirely to what we're talking about, but there's this overlap of how do you have a larger community that can then break up into smaller sub-communities of people that dive deeper together in a way that gracefully allows for people to find the right people for them. And when that group is no longer the group they want to be with, that they can kind of rejoin kind of the the mainstream and find like a different table to sit at. Is that kind of how it works? Like, you know, if I sit at one table and I might be there for months with one group, that there's a graceful, inoffensive (laughs) way to decide that I'm going to sit at a different table now for whatever reason? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a couple of ways that people move through the community. One is that when you come and join a table in particular, so the buddy system, we actually match peers one-on-one. And so our staff who are wizards at this, you know, actually look through people's submissions and try and match people based on experience and what they're looking for. And that's the one-on-one match that happens. If you join a table, we let people sign up for the table of their choosing, but we help hosts sort of curate their table and name it and provide a bio and name some of the things that they're hoping to connect around. So a lot of it is the sort of, hey, I see the story that you're holding and that actually holds some resonance for me. I want to sign up for your table and explore this with you. And so there's a lot of that opt-in connectivity that we allow for. And we don't, right? You can't always know what the relationships will be like until you actually get there. We hold the both and of kind of allowing people to opt into a table. And we encourage people that when they join that table, to stick with it for a little while, get to know the people, right? Connection can happen in one night, but real community takes time. And so we don't expect anything to happen immediately. But if down the road, four or five gatherings in, you say, you know what, this table is just really not serving me in in what I'm looking for. I'm looking to have a conversation about the type of loss I experienced or the cause of loss or something like that. And the people here don't feel like my peers in that. That's okay too. Like any relationship, I think honesty and openness in moments like that, going to a host and saying, hey, thank you so much for holding this space. It's just not where I am right now. We completely encourage people to do that. And then they can hop over and join a different table in the same way that they did the first time, which is looking through what's available and saying, oh, look at this host looking to hold a space that's geared towards suicide loss or a BIPOC table or something like that. And then they can join based on whether or not they share that experience or whether or not it's catering to what they're looking for. That's beautiful, of course. I'm curious to kind of take that a little deeper and maybe a darker turn is surely you've had instances where maybe someone joins a table and for whatever reason, 
they're not a fit for the table and maybe they don't realize it. Like it's still too raw. Maybe they're very angry, you know, for whatever it is, it affects the table. How do you go about dealing? Because one, like they have a part of them that feels broken. And so you don't want to make it worse, but you also need to protect the integrity of that table. Do you ever have issues where maybe someone's just not a fit for the org entirely or not a fit for the table that they've joined? Yeah. I mean, I we get this question sometimes. And I think one thing that I'm always excited to say is that like these instances are really, really few and far between. I think we have an amazing community where people aren't being forced into this community, right? If someone is grieving and they find us and they opt in to join a table, it's often because they're in a place and they're the choice that they're making is that, hey, I feel isolated and I want to build a community around the experience that I have. And so it really doesn't come up that much. And when and if it does, I think we navigate those things. I mean, this is sort of frustrating to say probably, but we really navigate it on a case-by-case basis. And what I would say across the board is that we try and remind hosts and dinner partiers that these relationships are just like the other relationships in your life, right? Oftentimes, if there's a conflict or if someone bristles at something you say or something lands in a way that you didn't intend, the best thing to do is just say, hey, like, I noticed this. It landed this way with me and here's what I'm feeling and have a conversation about it. And so if a host comes to us and says, XYZ happened at my table, often our first response is to just say like, how did that land for you? How are you feeling? Can we build a conversation with this person? Because it can feel like talking about grief is a totally different universe than talking about friendships or relationships. But it turns out that actually, we're just all humans. And if we kind of greet those relationships and those moments with humanity and seeing each other and talking through them, we tend to end up on a good side. I'm curious, it makes me think about like what and for lack of a better term, this is very sterile for this situation, but like what your onboarding looks like. So when someone does find you, and they're like, yes, this is for me. And they reach out like how you go about helping them find their table? Like, what does that look like? Because obviously, it's very successful, (laughs) which is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's I mean, it has looked different over the years. And so I can give you a little bit of a, a lineage, as it were, when we first started and before COVID, we matched every table by hand, as it were, we had an intake form and people would tell us a little bit about their loss experience and what they were looking for. And more importantly, where they lived. And what we would do is as we onboarded hosts in specific locations, we would build tables. And we would connect people who had a diverse kind of build a table around a diverse set of loss experiences. And ultimately make sure that no one was really like alone. So if someone had a particular, if a bunch of people at the table had lost parents and one person had lost a sibling, we would try and match tables so that that wasn't really the case, that we'd have a diversity of loss experiences so that people can actually have some resonance with some people and learn from others. When COVID hit and we moved virtual, we actually shifted from doing a hand matching process to having a sign-up process. And so that means that we still onboard and train hosts in the same way, but we leave the choosing up to the dinner partiers. And there was a moment in our org where we thought like, oh, wow, like, will this work? Because we've been trying to kind of play God and do all the matching on our own. And then it turns out that like, as we always say at the dinner party, like you're your own best expert. And it turns out that if you're grieving and you're looking for a kind of connection and you read a host bio and that lights something up in you, 
It's actually probably a pretty good fit and we love allowing people to do that. So the sign-up process has actually worked really beautifully and we've been running with that since March of 2020. And so to your point about like how do we help people get to their table, a lot of that today looks like setting up the host to really sort of curate a space and describe it in a way that will resonate with others. We ask hosts to write bios about their experience and then quite plainly just list the things that they're sitting with. What do we want to talk about? Do you want to talk about career shifts? Do you want to talk about the experience of losing a parent? Do you want to talk about suicide loss? All of these things are on the table. And when they kind of lay those out for community members, and then we put them up on our new platform, and people can browse through them, that means that people can kind of sift through and find what feeds them. So you're getting a little more granular in terms of how people really articulate what kind of a table they want to be sitting at for a given moment. Yeah. And I think that that means that like people can actually see some resonance when they're looking at the hosts and looking at the tables that they can join. And it allows for the host to go through that process of saying, what am I sitting with? Why am I here? What do I really want to talk about? And I think that's helpful for both sides. I don't know if this is helpful context, but we also allow people to start a couple of different types of tables. So you can start a table that is open to all loss experiences and identities. Those are sort of sometimes those are location based, sometimes they're virtual. Or we allow people to start affinity spaces. And affinity spaces are tables that are built by and for people who share a particular loss experience or identity. So you can imagine a suicide loss table, a BIPOC table, a sibling loss table. We have a whole smattering of options that people sometimes choose. And the difference between a sort of all loss experience table and an affinity space is really what's given. At any of our tables, you'll always find grievers who are in their 20s, 30s, early 40s who have experienced some type of loss. But if you go to an affinity space, you might be choosing that affinity space based on an identity or an experience that you resonate, that you've experienced. And you'll get linked up and know that everyone else at that table will also share that identity or experience. Can you just say a little bit more about what kinds of losses, maybe specific stories or moments that people come together around other than kind of what the initial common commonality was? So one thing we've learned over time is that everyone coming to the dinner party has experienced some kind of loss. And sometimes there's another factor at play where maybe you've experienced a suicide loss and being surrounded by a bunch of other people who have experienced parents or siblings not to suicide actually leaves you feeling still a little bit alone. And so connecting around suicide loss, whether or not it's a parent suicide loss or something else, you can actually connect around that particular type of loss experience. So we've had a lot of instances like that. I think one thing that has really stuck with me since the pandemic is one of the things about virtual tables is that when location kind of got thrown out the window, people could build affinity spaces in ways that they couldn't before. Before the pandemic, people were really limited to tables that were based in their area. And so the people who you were getting matched up with were the people in your city. And sometimes in really big cities, we could link people up based on experience. But more often than not, you're kind of just based on logistics and who's around. When virtual became a possibility, it allowed us to see like this whole new world of affinity spaces where people could gather in a really specific way. And so one, a couple of really beautiful instances of that were we had a couple of homicide loss tables. And I think the resounding response when we built those were, 
wow, I never thought I would meet 15 other people who had experienced homicide loss. And that's part of the thing about like getting to a table in your area is that we can't necessarily guarantee that we're going to have those 15 people on our wait list. But if we can build a table that is location agnostic, as it were, and you can say, here's an experience I've had, I've lost someone to homicide, and I'm really looking to connect with others about that particular experience, that can bring people together in a sort of new lateral way that we hadn't really imagined before. And so there are a lot of instances like that since we've gone virtual that have been really incredible. And those have spanned homicide loss and suicide loss to BIPOC tables or LGBTQ tables. We've also seen a lot of partner loss or sibling loss tables. Experiences that maybe aren't a sort of majority experience in 20, 30, and early 40-somethings, but no less really deserve the space and a kind of specific table built for them. What about with Corona and uh, now with Ukraine? I mean, there's a lot going on. There's grief around loss that I'm sure there's lots of folks who have lost loved ones to the pandemic. What about other forms of loss, like loss of our time and our lives, you know, and a, a lot of our energy? And I'm, I'm thinking of this also from the perspective of not just your community, but other community leaders who have to deal with the fact that they have a community of people who have and are still experiencing the trauma and the shock of difficult times. How has that played out? I mean, I think like for everybody, it's been complicated for us. One thing that I think came to the fore immediately as COVID hit a couple of years ago was that for grieving people, the idea of more loss and the the kind of shifting ground of or a kind of permanent feeling of shifting ground is really triggering. And so I think for our community, we sort of tried to be a witness to those around us and kind of see what already grieving people really needed. And I think a lot of the time our tables look like groups where people really show up with what they're carrying that day. And that might be the grief about the particular person or people that you've lost. It might also be how that's showing up in your day-to-day life now that we're living in a pandemic, there's war. Like, I mean, there have been just a, a litany of things that have happened over the past few years that have really brought people together and made the spaces for holding grief, many types of grief that need to be held. And so while we don't build or have the resources to build tables for non-death loss, as it were, we still really feel like these tables are built for people wherever they're sitting. And so I think it's certainly the case that people are showing up to their dinner party table and thinking about their personal grief while they're also holding everything else that's going on. And for better or worse, I think that's kind of a superpower of grieving people is that they're able to hold all the things at once, maybe not wanting to always, but being able to hold that tension and to hold the experience that you've had alongside the political climate, alongside a pandemic, alongside the community that you're building right in front of you. That's so powerful. And I I think it's an important point that even if people sitting at a table are there because they have a specific thing in common, what they talk about isn't necessarily all that thing. It's what's going on for them. And final thing on this point before we move on to rapid fire, but the thing that's on a lot of people's minds as of when we're taping this is Ukraine and all the just humanitarian tragedy that we're witnessing every day. I remember hearing this was about Corona. Somebody said, we we all have PTSD except 
we don't have it yet because it, it requires it to be post and we're, we're still in, in the trauma. Any thoughts on just how do we deal with grief when we know it's coming, when it's ongoing? How would you recommend we approach the difficulty of this, this daily tragedy that we're all dealing with? Oof. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a hard question. And I think I feel like I'm I'm sitting in the dinner party or position and feeling really like I'm not the expert here. And like, I think what has held true for me is that like, absolutely, we're holding grief that we carry with us. We are holding anticipatory grief. We are always looking around the corner waiting for another shoe to drop. And that is a hard place to sit in. And there's no changing that. Like, there's no silver bullet. There's no three-step plan that's going to get us out or or make it feel better. But this sounds kind of dorky, but finding people who will sit with you in that, I think is like the greatest gift because it's not all one thing all the time, right? We're holding all the hard and we're holding all the anticipation of what could be horrible and around the next corner. And we're holding where we are today and where we've been. And so, yeah, having witnesses to accompany you and walk with you and just witness you and how and how tough that is, that's what I'm holding on to because that's the thing the thing about grief is that we, we're not setting out to fix it. It's not something that we can solve. It's ours to hold and that's okay. But what we can solve is the isolation that one feels while grieving and while sitting in a hard place. And what makes something feel less isolating is just having someone there with you. And so that means just being able to share where you are from a day-to-day perspective and have someone listen honestly without... Yeah, without necessarily jumping to a conclusion, without saying at least, without those all of those platitudes that I know grievers have heard of like, well, at least they're happy now, or at least you got the time with them, or if life gives you lemons, that sort of thing. So much we can transfer just from the practices of what you do at the dinner party, um, how the tables work, how, and to your point, your organization has that specific focus, at, and as it should, that's what makes it so special. But all of us listening can take that and have people over, like literally have a dinner party. And maybe it isn't about grief. Maybe it's about, hey, the world is ending, you know, know, whatever, however you need to cope. I clearly use humor and have those conversations and make it okay. We don't have to pretend it's not in the room, whatever it is that's weighing on us. Yeah. And I think to your point, like, the dinner party focuses on one particular type of conversation or one particular commonality that brings people together. And our conversations are really far reaching. And a lot of that is because people are sitting with each other honestly and also asking questions. I think something that a lot of people maybe shy away from is the idea that if someone shares how they are, it's if you don't want to give advice or if you don't want to jump to a positive spin on something, what would it look like to just ask someone more about that? Like, what does that feel like? How does that sit with you? How are you working that into your week or working through that, right? A lot of the time, those are the responses that really allow the person speaking to be centered in the experience and to be witnessed. And it allows the person who's listening to really be an active, engaged party there. And so I think that grief or not, those, those are just human conversation things that are really beautiful ways to support one another. Oh, yeah. Sometimes there's nothing you can say or nothing you can offer aside from just tell me more. <laughs> you know? Yeah, or, right? Yeah, yeah. And that that's the best you can do. 
So, Mary Horn, are you ready for the super rapid, rapid fire? I mean, probably not, but I will try. (laughs) You are going to do fantastic. (laughs) There are no negative consequences to any of your answers. Stakes are low. Okay, great. Yeah, stakes are low. Fun is high. So, just first thing that comes to your mind, super quick answers to my questions, starting with Mary. What did you want to be when you grew up? A baker. Yay. Come to my <laughs> <A> pastry <house>. chef. <laughs> How do you define community? Something that you have that sticks with you over time. What is something on your bucket list, whether you have one or not, <laughs> that you have done? What's something great you've accomplished or done, experienced? This is really dorky, but I did get a PhD before I started community building. And so that feels cool. That's huge. (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. Not about community building, about music, but that's something else. That is amazing. And I feel like we should be calling you doctor. (laughs) Or you can skip that. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Not Dr. Mary. What is, just kidding. What is something on your bucket list that you want to do, but you haven't yet? Hmm probably hike a really tall mountain. And I can't give you the specifics, but just like start going and end up at the top. Love it. And I mean like actual outdoor hiking. (laughs) Although that metaphor probably applies to a lot of things. Right. What is a book that you just love and you want everybody to read? An American Childhood by Annie Dillard. All right. We know you're, you're in New York, Brooklyn. If you could live anywhere else, where would it be? Oh, on a mountain in the Rocky Mountains. I'm a Boulder, Colorado native, so maybe in the mountains in the Rockies. I know. I feel like you need to visit. But I really love Brooklyn. It's hard. It's hard. I'm holding both. (laughs) Okay. And finally, Mary, how do you want to be remembered? As someone who tried really hard, even if she didn't always know what to do. Love it. Well, thank you so much. Well done on the rapid, rapid fire. Oh, um, yeah. Did I make it? Did I? <laughs> you did, did I amazing. Pass? As expected. Yeah. A plus plus. A plus plus. Thank you so much for joining us today. So excited that we got to talk and just sharing, obviously, your own personal grief story, but also about the dinner party and just the value it provides to so many people. I think it's so important and I'm so happy we got to talk about it. Where can people find a table? Where do people go if they're interested? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for the wonderful conversation and for letting me talk about all the nitty gritties of this community. It's just fun and dorky and exciting to do. People can find a table or get connected to a buddy just by going to our website, which is thedinnerparty.org. You can also find us on Instagram and all those other places where we share out when new tables are posted and all that good stuff. So yeah, but our website is really just the main place to go. Great. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Jill, how are you feeling? So good. So good. I feel like just what the dinner party is doing, the peer support model that they have just gives me all the feelies. We need more of that. More topics, more age groups. And not to say that they need to do that. They don't. They know what they're doing. But very inspiring for anyone who feels a gap in peer support for whatever it is. This is this is your sign. There is a way to come together and have really meaningful conversations. Yeah. You know, we talk about peer support and it can be a very tricky thing for a community leader to get the hang of is 
trusting your people to be able to play that role for each other. And doubly so when it's a, such a sensitive personal topic as you know the loss of a loved one. But if you create the right environment, if you create the right structure, then you can reliably facilitate these spaces where peers can support each other successfully. And that supercharges your community's ability to have a meaningful impact. Yeah. I also really, I found it really powerful that they have this model for on-ramping into an ongoing group. You and I have been talking about this with our mastermind groups as recently as very recently. Five minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of how do you create ongoing groups of people who have a shared interest or connection when it's very hard to know, even on paper, you might say, okay, there's a bunch of people who all have something in common. Maybe they, you know, in this case, they have a personal loss that is specific to their experience and unlike other people's experience. The idea that people might have a thing in common, but that might not actually be the thing that makes them want to hang out and talk to each other. But if you're creating these kinds of on-ramp tables where people can meet some people using whatever excuse, you know, whatever kind of thing in common gets you all to the same table. And then saying, okay, if you really like the vibe of the people that you are hanging out with right now, then you can keep hanging out with those people. And if for any reason at all, you'd like to keep you know, trying new tables, you can just keep trying new tables until you find a table you want to stay at. And that is such a graceful way of dealing with a very difficult challenge, a design challenge for a community organizer. Yeah, it can be so hard. It's so easy to overthink organizing groups. I'm guilty of that, as you know, from six minutes ago. (laughs) I like that there's a bit of a barrier to entry that If you know about the dinner table and you align with what it is they offer, and then you take the next step to join a table, you are already, you know, the motivation is already there. And so then they know, you know, okay, we can, you know, pull up a chair, figuratively, literally, and we can meet you at this point and help you find the exact table for you. There's something nice about because it takes the the potential member has to put in some effort to get to the point of joining a table. It's actually quite easy on the community builders then because the person has already come so far that it's like, we know you're interested, we know you're engaged, and now we can kind of grab your hand and, and guide you to the next step. And I think it's it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about as someone who organizes groups, as a community builder to say, and we kind of do with masterminds with, we have a form that people fill out, but it's like, we need people to come to us a certain amount and then we can help facilitate, but we should really just let it happen. I think that was the big takeaway I got from how they do things. Just let it happen. Yeah. There's a real value in creating the right kind of a container for people to have something in common but then also giving them a little wiggle room to find the people they vibe with in ways that you might not be able to predict in advance. Yeah. We also touched at the very end and actually in the middle of the episode as well on some communication and emotional intelligence bits that I think are hugely valuable and important in terms of 
first of all, communicating feelings. If there's somebody in the group, you're, you're dealing with people who may be very widely varying states of emotional sensitivity. They might be dealing with that in very different ways. How do you communicate in a peer group? How do you teach people how to talk to each other about if something is not working well for them in the moment? And equipping people with compassionate tools to be able to say, hey, I'm feeling this way and let's figure it out, I think is hugely helpful. And then understanding what witnessing means is hugely valuable for peer groups. If you're going to put people in breakout groups online or in person, it's so critical that they learn how to actually pay attention to one another. And a lot of times, just being able to talk to somebody and see that they have just shut their mouth and they're giving you their full attention, especially when it's something as impossible as grief, that can be enough. That can be enough for you to be creating an incredibly impactful community that really helps people. The catch is learning how to do that well and learning how to teach it to other people well. But if you can crack that, and you can, it's not super hard. You just have to get the hang of it. If you can crack that, you're going to be doing really great things for people. It's very true. It's very true. It's worth just giving it a try. And again, like talk to your, I say again, because I say this all the time, but talk to your community. What do they what do they need to feel safe and empowered enough to do that? To say, you know what, Tony, you said something at the last meeting that kind of bothered me. And I just wanted to let you know that it's totally out of touch. And how could you? <laughs> See, now you have me scared because I'm like, did I? Wait, what did I say? Is this hypothetical or? Uh, <laughs> this whole episode was just a ruse so I could <laughs> get you on air and, and tell you about that thing you said. A month ago. Oh, no, it's a digital intervention. No, I'm kidding. Oh, boy. But really, as a community leader, it helps to learn to practice these techniques yourself. Look up active listening. Look up witnessing. Those kinds of things. You learn how to do it. You're going to understand how to teach it better. And you're going to set a better example uh, as well that other people are going to learn from. So go ahead. Tag us Team SPI on Twitter. Let us know what you have gotten from this episode we want to hear from you just shoot us a quick tweet say hello let us know how this episode landed for you and we'll catch you at the next episode of the community experience yeah thanks for joining we'll see you next tuesday this has been the community experience for more information on this episode including links and show notes head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash listen you can find The Dinner Party at thedinnerparty.org. You can find them on Instagram at The Dinner Party, on Twitter at Dinner Partiers, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is the dinner party. Our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Our series producers are David Grabowski and senior producer Sarah Jane Hess. Editing and sound design by Duncan Brown. Music by David Grabowski. See you next time.